Last Sunday, we read Genesis chapter 6 through 9, which, of course, is the story of the flood. And it's a difficult story to read when you take it on its own terms, rather than the sanitized or toned-down versions that we're exposed to today. At times, this story is simply hard to believe. I mean, is a global flood really even possible? Could Noah have possibly made an ark that big? And could he have really cared for all those animals for so long? As theologian Denise O'Grady observed this morning, that's a lot of poop. How do you take care of all those animals? And by the way, Kid City Kids, that was for you. But even if you can get past all of those questions about Noah's Ark, how it all worked out, there's another more difficult question that you may find yourself wrestling with. And that question is, why would God do such a thing? You read the story of Noah's Ark, a story with so much judgment and death, and it can easily leave us rattled. So why would God do such a thing? We discussed several reflections on that question last week. One of those reflections was that the story of the flood gives us a clear lesson on just how seriously God takes the problem of sin. And that's not just from one story in the Old Testament. It's a theme in the New Testament as well. The supposedly much more laid back Jesus says in Matthew 18 that if your hand leads you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye leads you to sin, pluck it out. You can't get much more serious about sin than that. And truly, if you want to see how seriously God takes the problem of sin, don't look to the story of the flood. Look to the story of the cross. That in order to be forgiven from sin, in order to be reconciled back to God, the cost of Jesus' blood, the price of our salvation was Jesus' broken body. That's how seriously God takes the problem of sin. But the harder response to that question, why would God do such a thing? Well, the harder response is this one. I don't know. You don't know. And God doesn't owe either of us an answer. As Job humbly learned after all of his suffering, there is one God and it's not us. And while God was gracious and patient with Job as he wondered out loud why God would do such a thing, God also reminded Job that in the big scheme of things, he was in no position to criticize God's dealings with our world. And the same is true of us. But today we shift to Genesis chapter 11, which is a much less famous biblical story, but an important one nonetheless. And as we read today, the themes may sound familiar. The words may remind us of words that we've read over the past several weeks. And the words of the story may even remind us of things that we hear in our own day and age. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are usually viewed as one cohesive unit meant to be taken together. And as we close that unit today, I think we learn several very important lessons. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. 
But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this gray, wet winter morning that we can come here and we can worship you. Father, many of us are coming off of weeks that have been filled with burdens, filled with stress and frustration and doubt and disappointment and even grief. And so many of us come feeling like we have the weight on our shoulders. And yet through it all, on Sunday mornings like this, we remind ourselves that even when life is hard, even when life is unpredictable, even when things don't go as planned, you are still God and you are still good. And Father, we simply ask you to remind us of that this morning. And Father, many of us come on the total opposite end of the spectrum. We come this morning with everything figured out, with everything going smoothly, with wonderful news in our lives and great successes and countless joys. Father, if we come here for that, I pray that we would thank you for those moments, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you rather than the good things in our lives that you give us, and that we would not take those things for granted, and that we would stay humble and remember that everything good that we have in our life comes from you. So, Father, thank you as we all come together with so many different experiences this past week, and we worship you together with one voice. And we worship your son. We love you. We praise you. We ask all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, before we read in chapter 11 of Genesis, it's worthwhile to skim chapters 9 and 10. Now, where we ended last week in chapter 9, Noah's son Ham had shamed his father by seeing him in a humiliating position. He saw Noah naked, drunk, And passed out. And instead of attempting to cover his father Noah, Ham went and told his brothers what he had seen. As a result of this shame, in the very first words that Noah speaks in his entire story, Noah calls down God's judgment on his son Ham and his son's descendants, specifically his grandson Canaan. And we see those descendants listed. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod. A mighty hunter before the Lord. You could say that Mike Davidson is kind of a Nimrod. He's a great hunter. Verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, Kasuhim, from who the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Pick up in verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, 
And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So you might be sitting there wondering why the need to read a list of cities and names that we can hardly even pronounce. Well, I read that list to point out that, in a way, Noah's curse against Ham and Canaan from back in chapter 9, well, the curse works. Because some of the people and places that we see in those verses, the descendants of Ham, they read like a most wanted list of Israel's greatest enemies moving forward in the Old Testament. Names like Egypt, slavery. Canaan, enemies. Babel, we'll read about that city in a moment. Nineveh, a place of exile. Jebusites, Amorites, Philistines, Sodom and Gomorrah. None of those people and none of those places are good in the rest of the Old Testament. And they all come from the line of Ham and Canaan, who Noah cursed. But before we move forward... There's one more interesting feature of Genesis chapter 10 that I want to mention. Several times throughout the chapter, we read that all these different nations appear to have their own unique languages. Now, why is that important? We'll look to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. So wait a minute. Genesis 10 says that these different nations have different languages. But here we read that the whole earth had one language. So what gives? Well, it's possible that these two chapters may not be in chronological order. The events of chapter 11 could have happened before the descriptions of chapter 10. But the author of Genesis, traditionally considered to be Moses, chose to put chapter 10 first. That's possible. But what I think is going on here is that there was one universal language in addition to many local or regional languages. Think about it this way. When you're at home, you might speak one language with your family or your friends. But then if all the people are getting together for a meeting, you speak a different language, a common language that everyone can understand. But then here's the main point of the story, as we'll see in the verses following. While this incredibly efficient means of communication would lead to some incredible achievements, it could also be corrupted when given to sinners in a fallen world. We start to see that in verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
You know, so far in the book of Genesis, the east hasn't been a very good place. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they went east. After Cain murdered his brother Abel, Cain went east. And now we read of people coming from the east to the land of Shinar. Many people also believe that Shinar, in the book of Genesis, would later become Babylon. Arguably the city where God's people suffered the most in all of scripture. But the real problem isn't where these people are coming from. The problem is the people themselves. Because surprise, they're all sinners. But even worse than that, they're smart sinners. As time has gone on in the book of Genesis, they've become more technologically advanced. They've learned to make bricks. And in the hands of a sinner, even something as silly as a brick can be used wickedly. So these sinners in Shinar decide to build a city and a tower. Now, what's so bad about that? Well, the text tells us a few different things. The first problem is their desire to be like God. When they say their tower will have its top in the heavens, it seems as though they're trying to put themselves on God's level. Just like Adam and Eve tried to do when they ate the forbidden fruit. On top of that, some of the words they use, come, let us make bricks, and come, let us build. So far in the book of Genesis, that's the kind of language and terminology that only God has used. It seems as though these sinners have forgotten their place under the God who created them, and they're attempting to place themselves on God's level. But then the second problem with this project of theirs is their pride. Even though mankind has already been given a clear identity and a clear calling from God earlier in the book of Genesis, image bearers meant to glorify God, care for his creation. In spite of the fact that they've been given that identity and given that calling, they've rejected it. Instead, they want to make a name for themselves. They want their own identity. They want their own calling. God can't tell them who they are. Only they get to decide who they are. They pridefully long to make their own name. And then the third problem with this project is their disobedience. They specifically want to avoid being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth like God told them to, they want to stay put in one city with one tower. So clearly this project is a problem. But what does God think of it? How will he respond? We see that starting in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they, will, they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In a way, it's ironic that God comes down to see what they're building. Maybe their tower isn't quite as impressive as they think it is. And if they thought a tall tower would somehow make them equal with God, they're going to learn that they were wrong. God sees their tower, all made possible by their common language, and recognizes that if they aren't stopped, that nothing will be impossible for them. Now, that phrase, nothing will be impossible for them, sounds pretty good. Until you remember that the them that you're talking about is a bunch of sinners. And when you're talking about sinners, nothing being impossible isn't necessarily a good thing. So instead of knocking down their tower, God does something even more impactful. He eliminates their common language. Towers and cities can be rebuilt but it's much more difficult to create a language from scratch. Thus, the people disperse and go their separate ways. Now, this all sounds eerily similar to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Think back to the Tree of Life. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden, not just for the sake of punishment, but for their own good. Had Adam and Eve been allowed to stay, They would have eaten from that second tree, and they would have done even greater harm. Well, the same thing is happening here. God punishes, confuses, and disperses these people, not just out of judgment, but for their own good and for their own protection. Because, again, nothing being impossible for them isn't good when they are a bunch of sinners. Now, it's an interesting story, even though it's not as well known as the stories of the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, or Noah's Ark. And while the story may be interesting, what does the story have to teach us? Well, I think it teaches us a few things. Number one, it teaches us that as mankind learns and grows throughout history, we change in all kinds of ways. Styles change. Languages change. Physical traits change. Worldviews change. Culture changes. We could never list them all. But in spite of all those changes, no matter how much time seems to pass, the one thing that just won't go away is the problem of sin. Mankind can accomplish things now that were unthinkable in the past. The same way that city and that tower could have never been built before the people of Genesis 11 learned to make bricks. In that sense, mankind has made astounding progress over time. However, like those people before us, no matter how much time passes, we're still sinners. And while much of our progress can be used for God's glory and the common good, our progress can also be used for great evil. The technology we use to save lives can also be used to end lives. As we learn of new ways to build, we also learn of new ways to destroy. As we find new ways to produce works of beauty and goodness, 
we find new ways to produce works of ugliness and evil. Why? Because that one thing remains the same. No matter how much we change, the problem of sin just doesn't seem to go away. Another thing we learn is that like the people of Babel, we can still find ourselves pridefully longing to elevate ourselves up to God's level. Sometimes we, too, work really hard to try and make a name for ourselves. We often try to reject the name or the identity or the calling that God has given us and instead try to pursue our own. We want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want the name that God has given us. On top of that, we can easily fall into pride when we step back and look at our lives and are amazed by how much we've accomplished. We might be amazed by how much we've done. It's like walking into a city and seeing a skyscraper and thinking, oh my goodness, if we can build something like that, then nothing is impossible for us. We pridefully work ourselves to death for the sake of reputation or glory or fame. We intently watch the number of friends and followers that we have on social media. We watch how many likes we get. That way we can expand our platform. We buy into the lie that more worldly power and more worldly influence will finally fulfill us. We attempt to build our own cities and our own towers with their tops in the heavens, hoping that the world will be impressed. And hoping that we'll finally have the identity and the security that we're searching for. Well, I hope in those moments that God would be gracious enough to us to come down and thwart the construction of those towers. To graciously put us back in our own place. Not just out of judgment, but for the sake of our own good. And then one more thing we learn is that a pattern is forming in the Bible up to this point. We see this pattern is pretty simple. Man sins, and God has to do something about it. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, mankind is separated from God. Because of the sins of those who came after Adam and Eve, great destruction came through a flood. Because of the sin at Babel, we see far-reaching disunity. And this simple pattern, man sins, God has to do something about it, that pattern shapes the rest of Scripture. And to be totally honest, at least from what we've read so far in the book of Genesis, you might be discouraged. And you might even find yourself wondering, is this fallen world beyond redemption? Will this pattern of sin ever be reversed? Well, the answer to good news is that no, this fallen world is not beyond redemption. And yes, this sinful pattern can be reversed, even though we're not quite there yet. But the pattern of man's sin won't be reversed through our own good works. It won't be reversed through our own accomplishments. Even if we can build the tallest tower you can imagine with its top in the heavens, we can't fix the problem of sin. 
But we look forward to the day when that sin will be reversed. When that pattern will be no more. But that won't be accomplished through people like us. That was ultimately accomplished through the man, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And then, of course, speaking of Jesus, it's when Jesus enters the scene that we really start to see evidence that the sin at Babel is slowly but surely being addressed. In the Gospels, people from many different nations hear the words of Jesus, see the miraculous works that he performs, and they believe. In the book of Acts, after Jesus has died and risen from the grave, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles at Pentecost. And these apostles start telling people of many different backgrounds and many different languages about Jesus. And yet, somehow, miraculously, everyone can understand. In Paul's letters, we read about how believers from different nationalities are being called together to form one unified household of God. We see that household of God today where believers may not share our language, but they share our Lord and they share our Savior. And then in the book of Revelation, that book of the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus returning in power and glory. In Revelation chapter 7, we see a choir of believers from every tribe and every nation worshiping God together with one voice. When the people building that tower at Babel went their separate ways, they left in a state of confusion. And you know, to this very day, it often seems like our world is a place of confusion. And maybe even further than that, a place of chaos. We live in a world full of lies, loss, pain, evil, heartbreak, and division. In other words, we live in a world full of sin. But you know, it hasn't always been like this. Even though, for now... Such as life in a fallen world. That's the sad truth of Genesis 1 through 11. But the good news is that in the same way that our world hasn't always been like this. Because of Christ, our world won't always stay like this. Even though the story has been ugly up to this point. God does have a plan to redeem this fallen world along with the sinners who fill it. And next week, we start to see how God uses just one of those sinners, a man by the name of Abram, along the path of redemption, along the path of forgiveness, and along the path of reconciliation, leading ultimately, of course, to Christ, who we worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to pray and take communion and sing and hear from your word. And Father, thank you for passages like these that are not only interesting, not only just curious and maybe even a little bit fascinating or maybe entertaining stories, but passages like these that as we dig deeper, we learn a whole lot more about our world and a whole lot more about you and a whole lot more about ourselves than we might have originally thought. 
And Father, thank you that ultimately these sad stories in the book of Genesis, stories of falling from grace in the Garden of Eden and floods and murders and stories that scare us, stories that leave us somber, discouraged, and maybe even disappointed and confused. Thank you that, as we know, the story doesn't end in the book of Genesis. That from the very beginning, in chapter 3, verse 15, when we read that one of Eve's offspring will defeat that serpent, Father, you fulfilled that promise through Christ. And thank you that we are the beneficiaries of that. That sinners like us can be redeemed and forgiven and reconciled because of what Christ has done, because of what you have done. So, Father, again, thank you for this morning, this opportunity that we've had to worship you. I pray it's been building up for us and encouraging for us, but also glorifying to you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.